Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. So, here's where we're at. In our last episode, we started our examination of the Grateful Dead's incredible, and frankly, underrated, studio discography by focusing on their Warner Brothers years, essentially the years spanning 1967 to 1970. While some of those records stand to this day as some of the best rock albums of all time, the decade of the 1970s saw the Dead explore a variety of styles, sounds, and even genres one would not associate with the band. With their dedicated fandom of deadheads growing to numbers and levels of obsession previously unheard of for a cult rock band, the band's sound had to expand in proportion to the sports arenas and large open-air settings they were now playing in. And the studio albums they put out in this period surely did not disappoint in that regard. Some of the band's most enduringly popular, influential, and classic songs came from the period of 1973 to 1980, and it's about time a music podcast shined a light on this material. Welcome to the second of our two-part retrospective, The Grateful Dead in the Studio, A Legacy. In the last uh, episode and in the first part of this series, uh, we left off at the height of the Dancing Bear, uh, namely Truckin'. And so what happened afterwards and what happened during the 70s? That's what we'll be covering in this episode. Uh, really, really fascinating stuff. Uh, dead from uh, seven all the way through to 1980. Should be good, right? Oh, yeah. 70s dead. So, I mean, you know, some of, some of their greatest, most iconic songs came from this period. People think of the dead as a 60s band, but really like the bulk of their great stuff came out in the 70s. <laughs> oh yeah, and and well, as we'll get into, uh, maybe there were diminishing returns. Like they they weren't as consistent by the end, but they were still uh, they were still working to not maybe innovate, but they were working to find new ground and to you know they never lost that spirit. You know they could have yeah. phoned it in, but they didn't. Yeah. So uh, and, that's even, pretty cool. Even at their worst, they were still writing some great songs that came out. You know, they they, they could not totally suck even if they wanted to. No, yep, no, no. There's a lot of bands like that. It's you know. I mean, they never really got to the Bob Dylan level where, you know, they were in, even in the 80s, every one of those 80s records from Dylan had one good song on them. Yeah. There were about three or four that had only one good song on them. Yeah. But at least they had the good song. The Dead never sunk to that level. So right. anyway, how's how you been, man? Good. I'm good. I'm ready to finish off uh, this series on The Dead and... uh yeah, for some reason the dead have gotten me into a sun raw trip lately. It's really weird. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen Sun Sun Ra's come up in a in a few instances. Actually, I believe I just saw a thing on Spin Kurt Vile and what he's vibing on recently. Yeah. And I think Sun, Sun Ra was one of the five records. So right, right, wow. right. Go go figure. And um, a little bit of music news I saw this week, and uh, I figured it's he's one of your favorite guys. So I figured I'll run this past you. Uh, Win Butler is yes. in a lot of trouble. Uh, Arcade Fire. Uh, he is, uh, turns out to be a serial sexual harasser slash abuser. And, uh, there was an article, I think pitchfork or one of those, there was a, 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 an article, one of those triggering articles of women, uh, revealing all some of the crazy shit that Mr. Butler allegedly, allegedly did. Why am I not surprised? I've always, I've always felt arcade, the arcade farce, which is a freaking phony baloney band of pretentious indie twats. And now I know when Butler fits the profile. Okay. Well, I, I just wanted to bring that up and figure, get your reaction. <laughs> and uh, just so everyone knows, in the parallel universe, there's no such thing as sexual harassment. And there is no such thing as me too. And uh, everything is wonderful over here, including the rock and roll and the music that is up on the pedestal and is widely uh, revered. Uh, so that is our concept for the parallel universe. Uh, as you, as longtime listeners will know, uh, every one of these episodes, Arturo and I uh, talk about an album uh, on this side of the space-time continuum in which uh, over the last few months we've established there is a vault in the parallel universe. And in the vault, uh, it's basically our treasure trove of albums of recent vintage, which we uh, define as within the last decade. And so, uh, for Arturo's pick this week, you're you're going into the uh, into the vault uh, this week. And got to say, the the guy who made the record that you're covering, uh, if there was a um, let's say if there was a picture or if there was a cover model for the Parallel Vault, uh, yeah. this dude's this dude's picture would probably be on it. And we're saying that about, and you'll be covering a record. I guess it's fair to say maybe it's like the it's like minor phosphorescent, or you know maybe it's like you know the third of three great records. I don't know. Yeah, maybe you it disagree. is. Well, it's still a fantastic record. And I'm sure. talking about yeah, uh, phosphorescent and their album from 2018, "Say La Vie." Now, since 2003, phosphorescent has been the one man musical project of the Huntsville, Alabama native Matthew Hoke. And just to prove that you can take the Southern boy out of the South, but never the South out of the Southern boy, he started phosphorescent in Atlanta and now resides in good old Nashville. (laughs) So, and in keeping with Southern tradition, Hoke's music generally rides the rails where country rock and folk rock cross tracks but see those traditions upended with liberal doses of electronic beats, spacey psychedelia, tasteful synthesizer washes, and heavy, slow-churning electric guitar workouts. Basically, imagine my morning jacket without the tendency to seriously rock out. (laughs) Uh, There you go. Normally, I would criticize this, but most of phosphorescent songs don't lend themselves to bombast a sadness and a yearning permeates through most of Matthew Hoke's work. Uh, and at its best, it evokes the beautiful dolefulness of Towns Van Zant, albeit if Van Zant grew up listening to Neil Young, Graham Parsons, and Will Oldham. 
The critical breakthrough for Phosphorescent came with 2010's Here's to Taking It Easy, an album of such sheer perfection that I personally rank it as one of the 10 greatest country rock albums of all time. Uh, A lengthy vault segment on this album in store, hint, hint. Uh, In 2013, Hoke had a near commercial breakthrough with the album Muchacho, a record that saw him expand his palette of country rock slash folk rock fusion and the aforementioned electronica and psychedelia, yet tastefully done so the sonics didn't overwhelm the songwriting. Five years later, sobriety and marriage with kids seemed to have tempered and soothed Matthew Hoke's soul, as Phosphorescence 2018 album Say La Vie is, lyrically, an album brimming with acceptance, wistful resignation, and a bittersweet contentment that his previous albums notably lacked. Yes, listeners, you out there who actually checked out Chris and my Parallel Vault recommendations from last week are being gifted with, at least on my part, a somewhat happy album. (laughs) And that's a good point, actually. Like, he's this type of artist. There's a few guys like him. I I think like, you know, guys like the War on Drugs and, and a few other bands out there that because they're, you know, they go from their mid twenties, then to their early thirties, then mid thirties, then approaching forties. It's kind of cool to see where they are in four years. And so it's, it's their talent and it's, it reflects where they are now and how they're, and how they're translating it. So yeah, no, this is neat. Uh, I agree with you. This is a very content uh, record, but it's steeped in realism and wisdom. It's not, it's not this sort of idealistic content and everything's great now. I think that there's, you know, it's, he makes it clear that it's earned and uh, it's not permanent uh, for sure. I, it's in terms of what, there's a term that gets used a lot on, I guess some folks used it like we used it, like uh, with one of our episodes in the gold, fourth golden age, where we talk about the be- what bedroom folk, like, you know, back in bedroom folk. Well, in terms of bedroom folk, this guy is he's always been even back to 2010 his bedroom folk is in the literal bedroom folk has always been really more beautiful and almost like kind of otherworldly and i think that that sticks here uh i hear a lot of springsteen my favorite song on this record is there from here uh and i i think there's a little bit of springsteen in there i think that there's he's got that you know that sort of folk rock uh sort of vocabulary that even goes there a little bit. I don't know if you hear that, but that's kind of Oh yeah, well, Neil Young for sure. Yeah, de- definitely Neil Young and definitely Graham Parsons I think are the the most obvious uh influ- like the most sleeve-worthy uh influences, but the California stuff too. Like you make like you made uh, reference to as well. So I know just the way he's able to get that pop sensibility with that pure sort of country uh, aesthetic. And like you said, but not phony is just awesome to me. And so, yeah, I mean, this might be his third best record, but that's still pretty fucking good. So, so yeah, as we're want to do, uh, I'm going complete opposite. And uh, I guess you can call this a little bit of cheating. Um, I'm doing, uh, or I'll be talking about a new album uh, by RZA. Uh, a lot of you have probably know of RZA, uh, but he 
you know, he's freed up and we'll talk a little bit about this here in a minute, but he's pretty much freed up from his Wu-Tang. You know, he's not tied down by that. So he gets to kind of experiment uh, a little more than he would have 15 years ago or so. And so now he, uh, well, one, he's now co-writing graphic novels uh, and which means he's now writing the scores or the accompanying soundtrack. Uh, to uh, graphic uh, graphic novels. And so uh, he released, uh, folks may remember, and I'll set this up. So, you know, RZA, uh, most, a lot of you will rem- know him as the, uh, the mastermind and the mad genius behind the Wu-Tang Clan. Although I don't know, or, uh, it just seems like at least in this country, the vibe I get is that most people under 35 years old could care less about the Wu-Tang or it's, Yeah, I mean, 97 was their MTV moment. And so there was this period between 93 and 97 where like Wu-Tang pretty much revolutionized things. Uh, And it was weird music, but it was weird music done wonderfully well. And RZA was the resonant weirdo. So like I said, Wu-Tang means a lot to our group. You know, there's men of a certain age and we're basically that age, anywhere between like 55 and like 43 or whatever. And so... RZA means a lot to us, might not mean a whole lot to younger folks. And so because of that, he gets to kind of fly under uh, the radar. And so he's now back to his Bobby Digital persona. This is why I'm setting this up. And so during. Oh, yeah, that's that's a that's a good record. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, of his solo stuff, I mean, well, that and the Ghost Dog soundtrack, I think, are the two best uh, things he ever did. And so in the midst of all this, just to set this up, so. When he's cranking out all these genius records by Raekwon and Ghostface uh, and Jizza and ODB and ODB, yeah, yeah, and all these all these classic records there, uh, you know, after Enter the Woo, which is ninety three, uh, he got he as a vanity project for himself. He came up with this sh- uh, shtick uh, where he called his name is Robert Diggs, Bobby Diggs, and so he came up with the persona of Bobby Digital which is basically a uh, he's a futuristic existential uh, comic book superhero uh, from the ghetto and and, you know, partying and basically like Riza gets to talk about his wild and outside from his younger days, but in the guise of sort of comic book uh, references. And so uh, what it allowed him to do, it was kind of neat because a lot of the Wu-Tang stuff is built on uh, samurai movie references and uh, and mobster movies so you know a lot of a lot of scarface and a lot of uh a lot of uh shaw brothers well he you know uh rizza's nerddom goes deeper and so you know he's big comic book guy he's big spaghetti westerns you know grindhouse art films you know european art uh and uh, all of his other influences so he was able to draw on all of that for this sort of sort of moodier uh weirder more reverent sort of 70s cinematic uh palette. And so he was able to play around with some of that with some very amusing stuff, by the way, on uh, Bobby Digital and Stereo. And so he's revisited the Bobby Digital persona off and on over the last couple of decades. Well, now he's come back to it because he's now exploring graphic novels. And so uh, last month he released this thing. Uh, It is uh, Bobby Digital and the Pit of Snakes uh, is what this is called. 
and he has this eight song, 30 minute uh, album accompaniment uh, to it. Now, uh, this, uh, I haven't read the graphic novel, but I want to. Why? Because here is the description from the publisher, and this is great. Quote, who are you? What is real? This is the question Bobby Digital is seeking to answer. Embracing his id, ego, and superego, he embarks on a quest to figure out the nature of his reality and himself. He will be ambushed by enemies unknown. He will be tried in ways most men cannot endure. Will he be victorious? Most of all, will he survive the pit of snakes? Yeah, man, fucking rad, yo. Uh, Haven't read it, but that sure makes me want to. And so uh, springing from that, uh, he gets this uh, little, like I said, 30-minute eight-song record. Uh, you know, Bobby Digital presents the uh, the Pit of Snakes. And it's really, uh, like I said, it's basically everything outside of his uh, his kung fu and, and mafia uh, uh, musical pout is kind of on here. And there's some really great stuff. It's, it's almost done as kind of a mid-tempo, kind of slow to mid-tempo Western. And so there's a lot. It's not so much rapping. Because, you know, Rizzo used to rap like a crackhead, um, but obviously he's calmed down in his old age. So it's more like sort of spoken word uh, speak saying these days. And so, you know, uh, so this, you know, some of the highlights, it, start, it, all, it starts off with this song called Under the Sun, which is very, very spaghetti Western uh, to the point where you can almost, uh, you know, hear the, uh, you know, hear the Morricone uh, in the in the mix, you know, very acoustic and uh, kind of the it, this is the origin story. Bobby Digital reborn as a uh, as kind of a a a steampunk futuristic cowboy. It's really goofy, really goofy shit, but it's fun. Uh, And then he he uh, hits on some black exploitation, Smoky Blues House with troubleshooting. Uh, He has a song called Celebrate Life, which uh, it's if it was early seventies and it had flutes and congas in it, uh, that's his influence. You know, Gil Scott Heron, Mayfield, Marvin Gaye. Uh, all of those kinds of things. And then uh, my favorite thing on this, and anybody my age who was a big hip hop head in the 90s will love this. It is the return of horrorcore uh, with the song We Push. Uh, Rizza and Prince Paul, once upon a time, uh, and I know you know this record, Arturo, they uh, collaborated as a band called Gravediggers and uh, basically invented this idea of... Uh, uh, of horror core, which is like it basically it's what it sounds like. It's like all these sort of, you know, you get those, uh, it's kind of spooky witch-like harmony singings and the, uh, you know, the organ like worthy of Frankenstein monster movies from the twenties and all this other stuff. And then with all this rapping about all this sort of crazy, you know, we'll eat your heart out kind of stuff. Uh, strange, but true. The, uh, the first, uh, the original title of that grave Dickers record from 1994 that they submitted, and I won't say the real word, but it was N mortis. So instead of rigor mortis, yeah, which would have been the funniest uh, album title of all time. But, you know, obviously it got turned down. So, yeah, so Rizza is he's going back to the future uh, with that. So good little listen. So, Art, what do you think about this Bobby Digital record? Yeah, normally I'm a big fan of a lot of what Rizza does, actually. Um, I'm partial uh, I like you said the Ghost Dog soundtrack from 2000. Is it 99 or 2000? I think it was 2000. Uh, 2000, yeah. 2000, yeah. That that to me is one of the best hip hop albums of the decade. And my favorite of his Bobby Digital stuff is the Digital Bullet album from 01. 
That's uh, fun. I, I love that record. Um, this one I think is more interesting than it is good. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a soundscape record more than anything. Yeah, uh, it, it's it, it's interesting in that way, and I kind of admire it in that way. But it's mo- it's mo- it's very it's most definitely a soundtrack record. Uh, it's enjoyable, but it's not one that I'll go back to. Yeah, and well, it's one of those things. It's kind of like uh, if you're you know if you're like. Uh, cleaning up your office and you just kind of need a, you know, kind of mood music or sure. driving music or whatever. Sure. I think it's meant to be, to me, it's meant to be consumed as one piece. I think if as a standalone song, maybe we push the horrorcore yeah. song, maybe yeah. that works standalone, but it's, I think it's like you said, it's meant to be a soundscape. And again, it's, 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 I think it's conceived as a soundtrack uh, to a, this graphic novel and right. it pretty much, you know, you could, it, this is the guy that curated the soundtrack to the Kill Bill movies. Gee, sure. you think? As we mentioned a few minutes ago, the rock and roll podcast space is replete with shows dedicated to the majesty of the Grateful Dead, created with the kind of dedication and granularity that we only kinda sorta approach here. Kinda sorta, of course, is pretty generous, but you know, work with us. It's pretty cool to dig around for what's out there to learn all about the amazing mythology and history of the band, and especially about the miles and miles and miles of live show tapes for old heads and newbies to explore alike. We just wanted to take a moment here to give a shout out to some of the best of these Grateful Dead-oriented podcasts. The Dead Pod, Dead and Gone, Working Man's Pod, No Simple Road, Code Names, Dead Show of the Month, help on the way, and we certainly must not leave out the official Grateful Dead podcast, good old Grateful Deadcast. It is an honor to be part of this wider rock and roll podcast community. Everyone in it teaches us just so much, and these podcasts that dissect and deify the Grateful Dead are among the best of the bunch. Check them out where you check out all of the other podcasts. Okay, so where are we? We left off in 1970 after the Dead released their masterpiece duo records, right? And the single biggest development in the Grateful Dead's career between the release of American Beauty in late 1970, which is where we left off in the last episode, and almost exactly three years later can be summed up in one word, deadheads. Uh, This fanatical (laughs) culture of fandom was unlike anything seen in recent or any music history. Tribes of hippies, druggies, and hardcore rock music aficionados would follow the band around on their nationwide tours. Even more impressively, every tour stop the dead made would turn out new hippies, new freaks, and new deadhead converts. Long before the internet era and the ensuing era of blogs and social media, Deadheads were united and connected via the band's very own print newsletter that increased its membership by thousands year after year. And of course, no mention of Deadheads is complete without noting what the parking lots of Grateful Dead concert venues became, which were emporiums for a burgeoning and conspicuous drug trade of all kinds of drugs. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Oh, yeah. The, the 1960s may have ended, but it was clear that huge swaths of the population weren't ready for the freewheeling 
free loving and free living spirit of that decade to deteriorate. And whether they intended to or not, no American band remained truer to that spirit and came to embody it more than the Grateful Dead. This would remain so for the next 20 plus years. For the members of the dead themselves, this stunning turn of fortune was startling to say the least. They went from being a moderately successful hippie rock band with some considerable critical acclaim to being one of America's biggest concert attractions, selling out sports arenas and large outdoor venues all throughout the country. They went from being a few million dollars in debt to their record label Warner Brothers and having a large chunk of their money stolen by their former manager and former drummer Mickey Hart's father to each member becoming considerably wealthy. Uh, This newfound success and status as a genuine industry within the music industry empowered the band to no ambitious end. And after they mutually parted ways with Warner Brothers, they felt confident enough to stick to their independent counterculture guns and form their own record label and distribute their own records. This, of course, would lead to a disastrous outcome for the band. <laughs> right, Chris? Yeah, uh, in, in a lot of ways. So when they, uh, you know, they, they do their independent label. And again, you know, they do the few records. Now, at this point, by 73, 74, as you, as you mentioned, uh, they had basically formed Dead Inc., Dead, comma, Inc., and uh, had again this thing had grown and so now by certainly starting in 73 and most definitely by 77 uh they are uh probably raking in as much revenue from touring as any band uh in the world or certainly in the in the u.s and so uh kind of like other bands of that ilk you know that kind of you know that make their their whole uh, reputation or that there's kind of this never ending rolling show. Uh, the new output in a lot of ways doesn't matter because you could come out with the shittiest stuff imaginable. I mean, you can yeah. sound, you know, you could basically make like metal machine music parts five, six, seven, and eight. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, you're still going to sell those tickets. And so maybe yeah. folks are like, you know, maybe we don't have the, uh, the, the incentive to be good or to be innovative. Right. Right. That never happened to the dead as yeah. we're going to talk about here in a bit. And so as they're growing, uh, you know, they have these complexities, the relationships, the drugs, which obviously was an issue through all of that. They figured out, uh, through all of these records, we're going to talk about even the ones at the end, which obviously there were diminishing returns. Those aren't anywhere near as good as the ones in the front of this list. Even so those records, uh, cranked out what became, uh, touring favorites all through the eighties. And when they had their, uh, MTV moment in 1987, when touch of gray, uh, went into heavy rotation on MTV, uh, at that time, a couple of the songs from, from those late records were probably the fan favorite moments of each show. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll mention the specific, uh, songs uh, when we go here. So, but that's something to keep in mind that they could have, absolutely phoned it in uh well they did once but <laughs> they, they could have phoned they could have phoned it in over and over and over again probably starting in 74 they didn't yeah. and so that that's yeah. to uh that's to be admired right. for sure 
Okay, and also one little thing to note that uh, in between 1970 and 73, there was a little thing called the Jerry Garcia solo album. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that uh, so I think it was called Self-Titled Jerry Garcia. Is that what it was yeah. called? Yeah. Yeah, basically, it's. I think it's just called uh, called Garcia, uh, oh. if, as far as I know. But it's it's his solo record. It's not quite self titled. I think it's just called Garcia. And uh, so this is 1972. Uh, it's important to talk about uh, this record because it is. You know, this is Garcia. While there was this two and a half year gap between American Beauty and then the their next formal uh, record release in '73. Garcia went to the studio and he made this record and all of these songs had been written. I don't think there's much in the way of new, new material that made it on here, but he cranked out a a solo record and Mm -hmm. it's a bridge. It's basically, it was where they had been. And so it starts, it, it, kind of notes where they had been and it kind of gives a preview of where they're going. I think it's Garcia and Hunter in a growth uh, phase. And so, yes, uh, one of the songs on this is To Lay Me Down, which mm. incredibly, in the course of researching for uh, this uh, series, I learned from several sources that Robert Hunter, the lyricist, and Garcia wrote Ripple, Broke Down Palace, and this song, To Lay Me Down, on the same day. Wow. And uh, To Lay Me Down is a very pretty song. Uh, would not have been out of place on American Beauty. Uh, it makes it here. Uh, but other than that, I mean, this is a this is a strong record, uh, and it's got about four or five songs that, leading up to this record, over the couple years before this, had become staples of their shows, mm-hmm. and a couple of songs that never actually dropped off of the sugar uh, off the playlists. Uh, the main two here are "Deal" and "Sugary," yeah, uh, Shu- and and "Loser." And loser, yeah, and the yeah. wheel. Uh, yeah. th- th- those four are really the main, uh, you know, songs from here that they never really fell off. Especially, Sugary is one of Garcia's best songs. Probably, I think it's one of his and and Hunter's five best songs. Uh, I agree. You know, yeah. You know, basically, uh, any uh, song that uh, slyly and subtly paints Garcia yeah. as uh, having a tryst on the DL <laughs> is. You know, gotta yeah. love it, but it it just has this you know real sway and just this great hook and this like I said this great little sly uh, lyric and uh, just good stuff and really like the wheel is one of those if you deconstruct it you hear all kinds of little inspirations and like lifts that you can uh, spike into all seven of the records we're going to talk about. Yeah, for, you know and, for uh, sure. Cu- couple couple of things to note. Uh, I mentioned the song "Loser." Uh, one year before Beck made it big with his song Loser in 1994, non-related to the Garcia song, the alternative band Cracker covered Jerry Garcia's Loser on their 1993 album, Kerosene Hat. Uh, So that's something interesting that that of of all bands, they're the ones that covered him. That's the album that has the song Low, which is like their big hit from 93. Yeah, that's a great record. And also, uh, during this period, Bob Weir of the Dead put out his solo album in 1972 called Ace. And it's got several songs that were routinely played by the Dead throughout the 70s, playing in the band, uh, Black Throated Wind, Mexicali Blues, and One More Saturday Night. Those all were hardcore Dead staples throughout the 70s and 80s. 
Yep, especially Mexicali Blues. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that that's fun stuff. So, yeah, that's that's a good catch. So you had Garcia and Weir, and so uh, it's kind of strange. So, like Weir was the second most prolific uh, songwriter in the band, but was the third best. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which, which we'll which we'll get into here. So uh, so that's really the prelude. So they've gone from being this uh, sort of uh, cult undergroundish uh, band to now like big business. And they're going to take advantage of that through these records and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and on their, their own label. And that's where we're starting here. And we're starting with the first one from 1973, Wake of the Flood. Now, it's hard for younger listeners to comprehend now that we're living in a time when the importance of a major record label is negligible. Thanks to social media exposure provided by outlets such as YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok and DIY and fan-funded websites such as Bandcamp. But one of the great things about being on a major record label during this time is that if you were a recording artist, there were safeguards in place to prevent your album, in this case, the tangible physical media of vinyl records, from being bootlegged and distributed to record stores with drastically inferior sound quality. Yet this is exactly what happened to the Grateful Dead hmm. in their first attempt at being a 100% oh, independent band. Big yeah. shock. Yeah. You know? Despite thousands of copies of the album being recalled from the shops, resulting uh, in a serious dent to their wallets and their reputation, the album is actually a stunning beauty of a record and a logical extension of the ground they broke on Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, and it possesses some of the band's most treasured songs. This is possibly the most quintessentially dead-like dead album in the band's entire discography, in the sense that every style and genre the band had ever incorporated and even would incorporate is either displayed full bore or hinted at on Wake of the Flood. It took a while, but with this album, they finally gained the confidence and momentum to capture the spirit and sound of their live electric shows in polished studio form. This is still, in my opinion... In my opinion, this is still the best and most consistent album of the streak of albums we're talking about uh, in this episode, with its only flaw being in the sequencing. A few too many slow tracks put in succession that slightly dilute the impact and power of the songs. But that's the only flaw. Uh, My standout tracks, Road Jimmy, demonstrates the group's mastery of languid hymnal ballads with Keith Gotcho's electric piano slowly guiding underneath his then-wife Donna Gotcho's and Jerry Garcia's stately vocals. And then, of course, there's the quintessential summertime, groovy, mid-tempo, glistening, Grateful Dead jam, Eyes of the World, with perhaps the most delightfully Jerry Garcia-esque Jerry Garcia guitar solo ever. Oh, yeah. Uh, when, When bands and artists try to emulate Garcia's guitar style, this is one of the tracks that surely comes up. Oh, absolutely. This is this is one of uh, the uh, main ones uh, yeah. for sure. Uh, uh, mention, worth mentioning on Row Jimmy, uh, yeah. you get the but reggae influences yeah. show up in this sure. streak, and so sure. these sort of and so that and I think that that comes from Keith Gacho 
because you got to remember, yeah. this has got you his first record. Uh, Ron yeah. McKernan Pigpen had uh, died of complications from alcoholism. Uh, yeah, dirt, you know, between American Beauty and here, and so Gacho has much more of a jazz like background, and so he's yeah. he's he's I think he's more eclectic and more sort of out there, and right. so I think that that some of that is is demonstrated. You know, like I said, Eyes of the World. Uh, again, I think an, another one of those top ten uh, Hunter Garcia songs of all yeah. time. Another one of those is on this record too. Yeah, uh, which I actually would put as. It's not my favorite Garcia Hunter, and we'll get to that in a in a bit. It might be the best Garcia Hunter song, mm. uh, St- Stella Blue. Uh, Stella Blue is this incredible uh, soul ballad. I don't know what you would call it. It's almost like a. It's Garcia as a as just sort of singing his heart out, literally. Yeah. that he is able to embody the ache of Robert Hunter's lyrics. It's basically, it's a boulevard of broken dreams, elegy, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, my heart's been left on the strip uh, imagery. And with Garcia singing that so uh, convincingly and so heartachingly, uh, the amazing thing is Hunter was what, 31, 32 when he wrote that song? Yeah. Which is kind of amazing because, yeah. I mean, how many, you know, how many lives had that guy actually lived by then? And <laughs> ap- apparently quite a few uh, yeah. to be able to capture uh, that. I did read an interview uh, about this where, and I think it's a Rolling Stone piece where uh, Garcia said at some point in the late 80s that, yeah, at the time when he was singing it, he wasn't quite grasping what he was singing. It's like, okay, that's cool. And I that that sounds good. And I can run with that. And he said it wasn't until right about then, when he was in his forties, probably around the time he had his his uh, his diabetic coma, that yeah. that whole idea of loss and mortality and and everything that's uh, reflected in that song kind of hit him. And so yeah. th- that's what I'm saying. There's just a wisdom and a beauty uh, there that uh, is is just pretty in- pretty incredible. And so yeah, uh, great 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 album. Uh, also. Uh, Strange but true, uh, this album greatly outsold American Beauty. Yeah, this was their this was their first top twenty record in yeah. America. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wake of the it was a, the next few albums actually sold really well uh, as far from for dead standards, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, the next one after Wake of the Flood came out in nineteen seventy four from the Mars Hotel. Now, after the distribution disaster, <laughs> let's put it that way, of yes. a wake of the flood, uh, the Grateful Dead decided to play ball with the man for a little bit and signed a distribution deal with uh, the major label United Artists. The band would fund the recording and production of their music and UA would handle the manufacturing and distribution of the records. Now, while not a perfect album, The wealth of amazing and iconic dead songs makes it a classic record in its own right. uh, Interestingly enough, this is the album that preceded the tour that would be their final one before their touring hiatus that would last nearly two years. Now, my standout tracks, while I would love to wax rhapsodically about Ship of Fools, a gorgeous companion piece to Road Jimmy that shows off Jerry Garcia's penchant for penning songs that approximate approximate the hymnal quality of gospel ballads. It's his rockers that resonate the most. U.S. Blues, another in a long line of iconic 1970s dead songs 
that would become concert staples is an almost glam rock stomper that shows lyricist Robert Hunter at his most lyrically wry using classic American symbol tropes. Uncle Sam mentioned multiple times and a deceptive wave that flag round and round course to underscore a sardonic take on how overbearing American society can be. Uh, the best song on the album, however, to me is Scarlet Begonias with its spiky time signature showcasing how drummer Bill Kreutzmann can write a song in the most unconventional of ways with his jazz background. And then there's Garcia's mesmerizingly angular riff with its complementary lead lines that stands as some of the greatest among dozens and dozens of examples among the greatest guitar work he ever put on tape. Highlight of this song, in my opinion, Donna Godcho's wordless vocals on the outro with husband Keith's writing of the harpsichord, making it sound yeah. unnaturally funky. <laughs> yeah, and and the the funny thing is Mickey Hart is not in the band at this point, and it's like one of the yeah. most Mickey Hart sounding things in the entire band. Uh, that yeah. catalog is that outro. Yeah, uh, those are this album. I, this is the best of the of the records of this period that we're talking about. I think overall, uh, Bob, second second best to me after yeah, Wakefield. Yeah, I'm, it's 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 close. Uh, and remember that we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but there's a difference for me always between best and favorite. Uh, yeah. The only kind of misfire on this record is Bob Weir's "Money, Money." Oh which, my god! You know, With the misogynist which, you know, lyrics. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, they, well, they're so yeah, they're so kind of scuzzy that they actually even in 1974, those guys were like, "Whoa, we can't be singing that." Uh, <laughs> you know, and so they kind of uh, killed that. But other than that, I I think it's a uh, a terrific record. It's a uh, real diversity. And, you know, like I said, Scarlet Begonias, uh, you know, and, and so it's like loose Lucy, which is fantastic. Uh, love yeah. that song. It's great. It's a great party song, you know, great little, you know, electronic piano, uh, you know, great kind of fun, uh, harmonies on that. Uh, but the two songs that make this one stand out, uh, to me were both written by Phil Lesh. Mm. And, you know, Lesh, he doesn't get enough credit. Uh, you know, Lesh is, you know, like we established on the last episode, classically trained musician who had never played bass in his life before he uh, joined this band and actually plays bass like a guy who just is discovering the bass. And, oh, I don't care about a pocket. It can do this. And so, you know, you get licks like uh, some of the stuff we talked about before, Addicts uh, of My Life, uh, that kind of like beautiful, uh, you know, basses as uh, soul lifter. Well, he does that here in two. He does it here in, in a tremendous song called "Unbroken Chain," mm -hmm. uh, which is just a seven-minute, just beautiful, uh, you know, just beautiful melodies, uh, beautiful arrangement. You know, sprinkling piano notes. Uh, you know, really subtle uh, lead lines. You know, nothing too, uh, nothing too flashy from Garcia. Just very subtle, uh, very nice. Uh, I will say this, and would you agree with me, Arturo, with this statement? At about the two-minute mark, between the two-minute mark and the five-minute mark, can you hear fish being either conceived or artificially inseminated? We're talking about the band fish. Perhaps. Uh, I always said the fish was inseminated uh, with the, the prog rock band Yes in their song Long Distance Turnaround, The Fish. And <laughs> the second uh, well, half of that song, that well, sounds that's a one lot of them. like fish. <laughs> yeah, that is one of them. But I, I just think that 
Uh, if you look at the early part of Fish's catalog, some of the stuff that's in the middle of Unbroken Chain was was a trope that Anastasio kind of leaned on. It was kind of like a uh, default, one of their default uh, 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 bridges, uh, you know, for sure. Like, you know, you know the Junta area era yeah. of Fish. And then, so there's that from Lesh. And then there's the other song, which... Uh, is called the Pride of Cucamonga, and I think I, I think this is a much better song. It proves that Lesh could do could was at his best doing country rock. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean I, I like, but the thing, yeah, here's the thing. So when they were making American Beauty in 1970, Garcia especially was heavily influenced at that time by the Bakersfield country scene, Bakersfield, California. Right. This is Buck Owens and Merle Haggard, most famously. There's a sound there, you know, very pedal steel and very kind of. Uh, jolly, but also satirical. And so uh, Lesh is able to step into that. It's not Garcia on pedal steel. It's a buddy of his that's playing pedal steel mm. on this. So that's a bit of trivia, but it's basically a, uh, it's a happy go lucky. I'm a trucker in the desert, you know, in the mythical desert West song. It's a trucker song. Yeah. Uh, and Lesh does it really well. It's a very orthodox uh, Bakersfield style trucker song. And yeah. so he, he does that. So those I think are to me, Besides Scarlet Begonias, uh, those two are kind of the standout tracks of this record. Uh, really strong, uh, very really diverse record. Only eight songs. I mean, that's the amazing thing too. Is it's 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 so efficient, so dense. You don't realize that. Like, wait, that's only eight songs. So yeah, really yeah. good, really yeah, really good. And and the whole Uncle Sam as uh, Jack the Ripper thing is pretty cool too. Yeah, yeah. Well, taking you know, great classic lyrical tropes and upending them. Um, for enough. all you listeners out there, we mentioned about the awful misogynist Bob Weir song, Money, Money. Uh, just to let you know, Robert Bob Weir did not write his lyrics. like Just like Jerry Garcia had right. Hunter, Robert Hunter to write his lyrics, Bob Weir had his buddy John Barlow write yeah. all the lyrics for him. And just to give you an idea of uh, why the rest of the Grateful Dead decided not to play this song live anymore. Here's a sample of the lyric. Uh, Lord made a lady. The Lord made a lady out of Adam's rib. Next thing you know, you got women's lib. Lovely to look upon, heaven to touch. It's a real shame they've got to cost so much. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Booga booga. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, way, way, way to go there, Mr. Barlow. Uh, yeah. yeah, so... But hey, yeah. even in 1974, they caught themselves. Uh, right, you know, good for so them. No, yeah, no, no, they were their own cancel culture. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. W- w- women, women like the Grateful Dead too. You know. <laughs> yep. But 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 yeah. as we'll now segue into, Bob Weir makes up for that and then some on this record. We're going to talk about now. Right. My my favorite, my absolute favorite Dead record, uh, over and above all of them. Uh, you know. Arturo, you know me. It's yeah. pretty obvious that it's and records like this speak to my soul. So yes. tell us about that Blues is, for Allah. That is Blues for Allah from 1975. It was their second album in their distribution deal with United Artists. And it was the one that benefited the most from their nearly two-year hiatus as the dead sharpened their musicianship and attacked their new material with a newfound gusto, gusto which is saying something considering the excellent quality of the of the previous two albums. Blues for Allah contains some of the group's most complex and sophisticated work. 
Indeed, out of the many facets and aspects of the band's music, this album is the purest example of what I'll call prog rock dead. Uh, this did come out in 1975, after all, which was the very peak and almost mm -hmm. the end of the British prog rock movement and uh, progressive rock movement embodied by bands such as Yes, King Crimson, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. This record sounds a lot like the dead were trying to compete with the virtuosity of those aforementioned bands. And while there are some interesting sounds throughout the second half of the album, it's Blues for Allah's opening trio of songs, the first half of the album, really, side A of songs that stands out the most as the most musically interesting, engaging, original, and best written material on the album. My standout tracks, the opening suite of Help on the Way Slipknot, which recalls the burgeoning jazz rock sophistication of Steely Dan before the latter band drifted into overly slick polished AM radio mediocrity. But don't let that description fool you. Just like Steely Dan were a great band before they descended into schmaltz, this track shows the dead could do creamy, dreamy, decadent, slyly complex 1970s rock with the best of any of the bands of that time. This is all before it slows down to mid-tempo for Jerry Garcia's mind-melting guitar solo. And this is before it returns to the naughty noodling of the track's beginning, before it segues into lightly syncopated soft funk of the majestic Franklin's Tower with a guitar line that evokes the, the vocal chorus of Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side, Franklin's Tower is a masterpiece of danceable, controlled groove that somehow glides with an airiness and a gentleness. And some of Robert Hunter's prettiest, most inspiring lyrics sung by Garcia with the utmost soul and sympathy. It gets my vote for one of the 10 greatest dead songs ever, quite possibly my favorite Grateful Dead song ever. The Latin jazz flavor of fellow San Franciscan Santana must not have been far from Phil Lesh's mind when he brought in the restless, manic King Solomon's marbles. <laughs> While Garcia's insanely naughty lead, lead guitar lines and Keith Gotcho's groovy keyboard runs dominate the forefront. It's the drumming combination of Bill Kreutzmann and Mickey Hart. Yes, Mickey Hart was back in the band at this point. That is the hero of this album, particularly Blues for Allah's explosive and extraordinary first half. Yeah, this album uh, to me is extraordinary. So as you said, this was an album they hadn't, they were, in on their high it is from the road and uh it, this was recorded at bob weir's personal studio uh in an i think it was right in san francisco and they came in with no i think the only thing that was written when they came in uh was either help on the way or crazy fingers one of the garcia hunter songs everything else uh was written there and i think that was on purpose because i think garcia was trying to challenge we're at least we're to, yeah. you know, like, you know, go come out of your comfort zone and let's see where we can go. And so that yeah. I think this record has a, a spirit and a, a there's it's the most boundaryless record that the yeah. dead uh, ever did. And, and that actually includes, OK, second most uh, <laughs> anthem of the sun. But yeah. but OK, 
let me rephrase. This is the most boundaryless record with real songs on it. Uh, right. Yeah, as opposed to Anthem of the Sun. And so there's a, an adventurousness uh, here. Um, Garcia, even though he was he's known as a guitar maestro, he was not really a soloist on on tape on record. And mm-hmm. so there, there's not a whole lot of these sort of, you know, sort of feature spotlighted uh, guitar solo workouts. Slipknot is that where he gets to show what he can do, really. And that is just incredible. It's got that razor burn, you know, that tone that he could get, like the bottom end of his tone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just, yeah. So that, like you said, that whole help on the way, which I never thought of it as jazz rock, but it has that kind of almost kind of like Batman kind of, you know, almost like that little, you know, the sort yeah, of yeah. Uh, like little Broadway touches, a very sly uh, uh, song uh, there and how it just mat- you just sort of seamlessly switches into Slipknot and then Slipknot seamlessly goes into Franklin's tower. Uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. King Solomon's marbles. Uh, this is where Keith Gacho was, you know, that's his finest moment. Uh, you know, the fact that Phil Lesh was involved in that too, that he started it because obviously mm-hmm. Mickey Hart's involved in it. Right. Uh, but then you have Gacho and then the second half of the record now boost for Allah, which is the title suite. Uh, that was written in honor of King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, who had just died. Mm-hmm. And so basically it's an elegy for, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the Sunni, uh, the dark Sunni prince of the Middle East, go, go figure. <laughs> but, and so it's my favorite record because, because of it's got that free spirit and it's got that eclecticism and it just has this sort of just ma- these magic touches uh, to it. And uh, the one thing to mention about this record um, that we need to talk about, Bob Weir. Weir gets a lot of flack uh, (laughs) and probably deservedly so because, you know, obviously he's most well known for co-writing those couple of hits from American Beauty, you know, Truckin' and and, uh, Sugar Magnolia. But he, uh, Wake of the Flood uh, ends with this pretty much dead by numbers sweet at the end uh you know the which, weather report which, which, I, which i really like actually yeah it, it, it it's actually really good but it's dead by numbers and so it's not necessarily something that you would say oh okay no that's great or it's it's not really hugely standout so that was before blues for Allah. and they obviously money money after uh blues for Allah, you know we're they basically kind of leaned on we're to kind of help mm-hmm. them survive You know, that, you know, when uh, Garcia was running low on inspiration that, you know, Weir had to come up with these. uh, Weir had this thing of wanting to play like a like a an R&B showman, you know, you know, with the with the, you know, with the backup singers behind him and doing all this. So he had these kind of, you know, like he would it was like white boy R&B and he was really straining. He was really straining to get in touch with his African-American roots. Uh, (laughs) And and some some of it was painful here. And I guess maybe because he was challenged, I think he writes his best song on it uh, that he ever wrote for the band. The music never stopped, which just this it's just this really strange kind of, you know, the lyrics evoke uh, like an old timey country festival kind of, you know, fair type of thing. But the music has this not quite bluesy and not quite jazzy, 
but somewhere in the middle, it's like this sort of like this really like kind of laid back little groove that has uh, jazz touches in and out. You know, uh, you know, Keith Gacho uh, features prominently in it. Donna Gacho, this is her finest one, one of her finest. Mo- it's not it's not her finest moment, but one of her standout moments is her singing on this. And yeah. it's just a really joyous song. Where's where's best accomplishment in the dead? And then his most surprising contribution. So the prelude, the blues for Allah is probably the sweetest, most sort of classical, most definitely Middle Eastern reverent thing on the record, including anything of blues for Allah. This little instrumental called Sage and Spirit. You first mm. hear it, you know, it's dominated in the arrangement by, again, it's acoustic guitar and flute. And it's this very exotic little thing. You would think it might be Garcia because obviously he's got talent on loan from God. You would think it's probably Phil Lesh because he's the classically trained guy and has a kind of brain. No, this is from, holy shit, this is from Bob Weir. That, you know, Weir was capable of this kind of, uh, of this kind of stuff, which, you know, was just remarkable uh, to me. And so it's, you know, it's, a, it's just, a, it's a record that flows. I think it's a record that brings out the best in everybody. Uh, it also, it also, one last thing, this song, this album also has the best of their phony reggae songs, I think, uh, which is uh, Crazy Fingers. Which, oh, I totally, totally disagree with that. They did much better reggae later on. Well, there was that, and then well, Ro, Ro Jimmy. I, it, it's between it's between those two. Uh, also worth mentioning that we're at this point now. This is kind of a critical turning point for the band because this record, uh, from the Mars Hotel, that transitioning that to Blues for Allah. This album, Blues for Allah, only has two Garcia Hunter songs on it. Yeah, and that's the first time that they are not the dominant creative force behind one of their records. Obviously from Aksumaxoa all the way through Wake of the Flood, it's almost, what is it? Like 85% them. And yeah. then yeah. even from the Mars hotel, that's mostly them. It's like five out of the eight songs, I believe are them. And so you start to see their output dwindle. And I think that pretty much sets up the, rest of the story from here uh any other thoughts yeah. on blues for Allah before we move on yeah I, i'm not as enamored with the bob weir stuff on the second half as you are i think they're actually kind of mediocre um they're a bit airy fairy for my personal taste uh, i i think he's stretching himself which is good but just because you're trying something new and different doesn't mean it's automatically good and uh i to me this is one of those moments but the first half of this album, Side A, that, that I talked about earlier, is utterly fantastic. Some of the best music the dead ever made. It's more than makes up for anything else on the record. Um, it's your personal favorite album of, of the dead. But you know who's not really a big fan of this record? And I knew you were going there because this is hilarious. Uh, who? Yes. Yes. This is Robert Criscow, the dean of music journalism in and he's in America. In his 1975 vintage review uh, for The Village Voice, he said, this is what he says, quote, I've been hypersensitive to this band's virtues for years. This time I find the arch aimlessness of their musical approach neurasthenic. I have no idea what that word means. means neurasthenic and their general muddle-headedness worthy of yes or the straws. C minus. <laughs> On this episode, 
Chris and I completed our two-part retrospective on the Grateful Dead's brilliant studio albums. For the next episode, Chris and I will pay tribute to the band most responsible for keeping the tradition of jam band culture alive and reinventing it for a new generation of fans by the end of the 20th century. That band, of course, is Fish. Love them or hate them, you have to acknowledge them. Known for their legendarily powerful and virtuosic live shows, their studio discography is much underappreciated. Also, their one-band multi-night festivals were the inspiration for massively popular American festivals of today, such as Coachella and Bonnaroo. Join us next episode for Fish in Defense of a Legacy. All right, the next album, and we're halfway there, uh, is Terrapin Station from 1977. The Grateful Dead were unhappy at this point with the overall sales of their first three albums on their own independent label. While all those albums debuted in the top 20 of the Billboard album chart, they reflected the opening week buying power of Deadheads and not much else as the record soon slipped down the chart. They had a right to be at least a bit unhappy with how United Artists were distributing and promoting them. The three albums we've mentioned had some of the best music and most memorable songs of the band's career. In a parallel universe, they would have sold as much as the Eagles. As a result, the band decided to fold their independent label and sign on with Arista Records, the label just started by legendary music biz honcho Clive Davis, who had established his reputation with Columbia Records in the 1960s. Davis's idea to make the Dead's record sales match their status as a supreme concert attraction was to pair them up with Keith Olsen, who had most recently worked on Fleetwood Mac's hugely successful 1975 self-titled album, i.e. the first one with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. What resulted was the flattest, slickest, most sterilized, overproduced, overpolished turd of a record the Grateful Dead had put out to date. At least the prog rock on Blues for Allah had some bite and soul to it and some inspiration. On Terrapin Station, the band sounds at times tired and lethargic, at other times just confused. If that wasn't bad enough, some of the tracks were buffed with an orchestra string section scored by Paul Buckmaster, the same guy who orchestrated Elton John's records. The dead with an orchestra, fuck off. It's telling (laughs) that Jerry Garcia himself spent a lot of time during the recording of this record out of the studio, working on exhibiting and promoting the upcoming The Grateful Dead movie filmed three years before and touring with his own Jerry Garcia band. He would rather be with the Jerry Garcia band than record this piece of shit and it shows uh, when on, on record. My standout tracks, not many, but guess what? Bob Weir to the rescue. The Gee. band's m- much maligned rhythm guitarist and other lead vocalist contributes what to what amounts to the only two good songs on the album. Estimated Profit is the band's, in my opinion, 
second successful recorded foray into reggae with Garcia adding a weirdly yet seductively muffled wah-wah pedaled guitar throughout the track. And then there's Samson and Delilah, quite possibly the most rocked out, pissed off song about a biblical story in rock history. (laughs) That's about it for Terrapin Station. Well, yeah, non-Bob Dylan division, Uh, you know, for sure. So, yeah, this record, yeah, it it's the epitome of it is what it is. Uh, Like you said, they were under that pressure from from Davis. And it's interesting Garcia only writes one song. Basically, he writes. So this album ends with a medley. It's basically a seven part medley that goes on for 16 minutes. Uh, I think officially called Terrapin Part One, uh, and it it is so weird. Uh, it, it's it's interestingly weird that I love the way it gets the the start it gets off to is great, like you know the sort of the central melody and uh, and that, but then it gets proggier and weirder, and then in a couple points just plain old stupider. Uh, the only the, the things that make it stand out one again it's only it's Garcia and Hunter's only contribution to the record at all uh and it's also uh Mickey Hart to clarify one point Hart was not officially back on the back in the band during the boost for Allah he he kind of came in and they recruited him or he while he was there he came by and he helped them work on King Solomon's Marbles and it was after that that they officially let him back in. And so in these last few records, we'll be talking about Hart and Kreutzmann. Uh, they got writerly together. And so there are these, you know, the two drummers making these percussion uh, compositions, these li- like short, basically like one minute, two minute compositions. Uh, this suite is the debut of that. Um, uh, but it also, you know, it, the sound of it is strange. And again, uh, to your point, they use Keith Olsen, but it's very over-engineered. Like it's you, overly produced and too slick. It's yeah, too that's clean. what I mean. Too yeah, clean. I mean, you if you're gonna produce the dead, I mean the dead are like the most sort of uh ethos uh musicians. I mean it's it's like musicians, musicians, right? You need yeah. a musical, you need a musical producer, you don't need an engineer. Uh, to produce produce their records, and it sounds like that because, again, with Terrapin Part One, and it's kind of the same thing with a couple of the other tracks. Like, there's this just this weird electronic sheen to both Garcia's voice and the guitar to yeah. it that it just doesn't. It it's like what in the world? What is that? It 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 doesn't sound like a natural product that could come out of a natural instrument. You know what I mean? The thing about this record, um, and I and, and I read about this in David Brown's book on the Grateful Dead, uh, Keith Olsen, the the Fleetwood Mac guy who produced this record, what he did with Garcia's guitar is that he recorded each note separately and he pieced them together. And oh. that's why it sounds mechanical and robotic. And Garcia hated it. He would complain to Olsen and say, hey, listen, man, I, I would never play that solo that way. That's not how I yeah. would do it ever. And Olsen said, no, trust me, it'll sound good this way. Well, no, it sounded like shit. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but Gar- Garcia spoke a language. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a There was a logic and a syntax. Remember, he's talked about the syntax of music, and yeah. you can't do that with a guy who's a linguist. You yeah. can't do, like, clipping, 
clip and paste, you know, yeah, and you can't do like alien language or, you know, that, that just doesn't work. So, and it shows. So yeah, uh, totally. God bless Garcia. And uh, for what it's worth, by the way, uh, so best song on this record is estimated profit. Uh, you know, you're in trouble when the second best song is from uh, your, uh, your harmony backup singer. Uh, this is, this is Donna Gacho's uh, starring role, a uh, good singer. And it, it very much is like a sort of that, like that light disco, soft core porn, like exotic pop music of the late seventies. It, it's it's pretty hard. I like, I like that music when I'm watching the Emmanuel series, not when I'm listening to the grateful dead. Okay. okay. Now next is shakedown street from 1978. Oh, yeah. Now this is more like it. Getting Lowell George from the American roots rock band Little Feet to oh, yeah. produce this album was a wiser choice and proved to be more sympathetic to the band's eclectic inclinations. And this is indeed one of the Dead's most boldly eclectic records. Disco, reggae, and African rhythm sprinkle much of the music. Conversely enough, while Bob Weir saved the previous album from utter oblivion, he almost sank this album. By contributing to the eclecticism with a couple of really lame Eagles light Southern yeah. California soft rock fluff. This is Weir at his worst. And Weir at his worst, nevertheless, does not stop the overall charm of Shakedown Street as it showed the band getting back to their freewheeling, musically adventurous form. Uh, one thing to note the making of this album was a very troubled one. On the 10th anniversary of Anthem of the Sun, the Dead's most drug-addled album, the making of Shakedown Street was rife with drug use by various band members and entourage, with cocaine being the main item on the menu. Hey, it's the late 1970s, baby. What can I say? Uh, Lowell George himself was struggling with cocaine addiction at the time and would die from a cocaine-induced heart attack. Yeah, a year later. Garcia, who had started smoking heroin during the middle of the decade, was on his way to being a full-blown junkie and would see his situation deteriorate by the early 1980s. The gotcho husband and wife tandem, backup singer Donna Jean and keyboardist Keith, were going through serious marital problems and were both going through alcohol and drug issues. They would break up and get kicked out of the band by the following year. So, hey, yeah, good work, Ace. Yeah, there was some drama behind Shakedown Street, but there's some great music though. My standout tracks. Hey, we still got the songs right. The title track, Shakedown Street, gives birth to the newest facet of the band's musical identity, Disco Dead. Oh yeah, and boy, do I love me some Disco Dead with its groovalicious bass line and Garcia's pulsating wah-wah-pedaled riff. Shakedown Street is, hands down, one of the five or ten greatest disco rock hybrids ever recorded, right up oh, yeah. there right up there with Blondie's Heart of Glass and the Rolling Stones' Miss You, all having come out the same year in 1978, and one year before Kisses' I Was Made for Loving You back in 1979. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, really cleverly arranged record, uh, you know, a, a song, but, but, you know, like Mickey Hart and Phil Lesh are having sure. a lot of fun on that, oh, yeah. on that song. 
And perhaps, in my opinion, the Dead's greatest ever reggae track is on this record with the majestic Fire on the Mountain, oh, yeah. one of the Dead's concert highlights during this period. Even the weirdo drum excursions of Mickey Hart and Bill Kreutzmann, particularly in Serengeti, work in the overall tapestry of a mostly terrific record. Yeah, uh, this record is is very, very strong for a few reasons. This is Mickey Hart's finest hour uh, with the dead. Uh, there's just touch. <laughs> there's just touches. And, you know, like obviously Fire on the Mountain, which became like a huge staple through the rest of the band's history from his side. You know, it was just basically it was a highlight of their their shows. Uh, that's a Mickey Hart uh, uh, and uh, Robert Hunter uh, collaboration. Great song. Like you said, very you know strong kind of reggae. Uh, backbone uh, for that. Obviously, you know, hearts, you know, there's Calypso drum that shows up in France, uh, which, you know, is a Mickey Hart touch. There's Serengeti. Uh, you know, I, there's obviously a big influence on Shakedown Street, uh, you know, with the, with the rhythms, uh, with the rhythms there. So I think that this is kind of hearts record. Uh, the other fascinating thing about this record is Lowell George's uh, contribution to it. Uh, you mentioned this now, here's a baseline for like the, uh, the travels and the evolution and the sort of the changing of the times with the dead on their self-titled debut from 67. Uh, one of the songs, one of the better songs, and it's on the second side is uh, new, new Morningwood blues, which is a mm. cover of an old uh, Noah Lewis jug band blues uh, song. Uh, and they played it, they ramped it up uh, very strong, just sort of, you know, sort of like really energetic kind of unhinged playing from, uh, from Garcia, uh, you know, Pigpen's organ, uh, is, is very, very, you know, noticeable and kind of helps drive the song. And it's, you know, basically it's an acid and weed party song, you know, it's kind of like yeah. an underground San Francisco party scene song. Well, on this record, uh, it appears again as all new Morningwood blues. And mm. now it's gone from the weed and acid party song to the cocaine party song. <laughs> and, and you can tell this is Lowell George. This is where the, the little feetness shows up the most, just this really strong, you know, really great guitar. Uh, it's Garcia's best, like his nastiest guitar playing on the entire record is there. And just, you know, drums right up in the mix, nice piano touches from Gacho. And it has that kind of patented Lowell George stomp, kind of clap and stomp yeah. that, that made right. his stuff so great. And so just to see, you know, the two versions of it and the kind of the bookends uh, are, is, that's just pretty, that's pretty fascinating uh, uh, to me uh, as well. And like you said, Disco Dead, uh, gotta, gotta love them. But at least uh, now the real good Disco Dead is here. Now to pr show the world that they really truly were thinking about and really wanted to be Disco Dead, all you have to do is look at the cover of the next record we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. Which, which is one of the funniest covers of all time. Yeah. Go to Heaven from 1980. Yep. At the time of its release... Go to Heaven was panned by critics and a substantial part of the Grateful Dead's fan base for being overly commercial and processed, a notion certainly not helped 
in fact, most likely informed by the then dismal but now hilarious album cover with the members of the dead smiling in front of the camera, wearing matching white disco suits with a white background and the image completely embalmed in gloss. Ooh, baby. (laughs) (laughs) However... Time has proven rather kind to this record, as it contains some more than its share of excellent tracks. Jerry Garcia only brought in two songs from the Hart Garcia Hunter partnership, but they're the two best songs on the whole album. Alabama Getaway rocks with a force that updates Creedence Clearwater Revival's Swamp Rock for the New Wave era. And Althea is a late period Garcia Hunter masterpiece. Whereas the light funk of Franklin's Tower was high, uh, the light funk of Althea is down to a mid-tempo swampy low with Hunter's lyrics about feeling emotionally lost and stranded. They might as well have been about Garcia's troubled life at the time, his his relationship issues, his drug issues, etc., Um, After seemingly forever, the band finally record their rollicking, stomping cover of the old folk standard, Don't Ease Me In, in a a song that had been a regular part of their concert repertoire for years. And hey, Bob Weir actually does not have the crappy commercial songs on this album. No, Uh, he does not. That that distinction goes to the two shit sandwiches on this record that belong to the Dead's newest keyboard member at the time, Brent Midland, who was a terrific musician, a fine keyboard player who meshed well with the band's improvisational live sound, and quite a soulful backup singer. But by God, was he an awful songwriter. Uh, With turds like Easy to Love You and Far From Me, you can already tell by the song titles. Yeah. His, his originals are straight up corny California soft rock from the school of Michael McDonald and the Doobie Brothers. Uh, yep. This would be like if by the end of the 1990s, Fish decided to allow Brooks and Dunn to join the band and write songs. It's <laughs> that bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, that should not dissuade anyone, though, from appreciating the acquired taste gifts this album has to offer. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Like Brett Midland, you know, like the most uh, slickly produced songs on the record are from him. Well, the guy who produced the record also produced a couple of foreigner records around the same time. I think, <laughs> I think he produced foreigner four, which was basically made and released around the same time. So go figure. Uh, yeah. yeah, this, this record is actually, like you said, um, it's half and half by this. This is the kind of the edge where, uh, like we said in 74, it started not to matter if they did good music or not Yeah. by 80. It really didn't matter. Now yeah. they managed to crank out one last classic Althea, uh, yeah. which you mentioned. Uh, I think it, it's an extraordinary lyric. It's kind of up there with those, you know, Dylan had these kind of great, like kind of back and forth kind of dialogue larks, you know, Frankie right. Lee and Judas priest and ISIS and songs like that. I think it's kind of up there. And and like you said, I think that uh, the the person or the dude that Althea is addressing was probably yeah. Hunter's way. It was kind of a uh, way of conveying his concerns for Garcia's deterioration. Uh, yeah. in, in some ways, that's, that's obvious. Uh, Rolling Stone did an article in 2020 uh, where they 
got everybody together, including I think David Brown and all their dead experts to make a list of the 50 greatest uh, dead or Garcia Hunter songs of all time. Yeah. And uh, that song, Althea is number 20, which I believe is the only, that's the highest ranking album from the eighties on, uh, or the, the highest ranking song, excuse me. Uh, and it's like that their last great masterpiece, you know, it, it really just has this, like I said, this nice bluesy feel like really sort of sweet playing by Garcia, great singing. And it's mesmerizing. It's a really, a, you, it's a, it's a seven minute song that feels like it's 17, yeah. but also not too long. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So, so it's, it's, it's basically a perfect, uh, perfect song. Uh, Alabama getaway is fun. Uh, I think it's lightweight. I don't like it as much as, as you do. Um, I don't really see that. And then I think that, yeah, there's, there's some amusing stuff. I think that the, uh, the Mickey Hart Kreutzman thing is their worst, uh, on, you know, what that they do here. It's, it's really, really cheesy. So, uh, yeah, basically what, like nine song record, like two really good songs, maybe one or two so-so ones. There's a really fun one by Bob Weir on there. Um, but yeah, the rest of it is garbage, and and this is this is where we're going to stop because this is kind of where they, like you said, because of the drugs, because of all the, you know, they they were starting to really kind of fall off, and so the last two records they did come in 1987 and 1989, pieces of shit. And although although I will I will admit that I have a, a big soft spot in my heart for Touch of Gray. That is a great oh, I do single. Too. Oh, I do too. I mean, um, I, yeah, I grew up on that. Yeah, but in the in the dark is a really bad album from '87, and built to last from '89, maybe the worst dead album ever. Way yeah. too much, way too much Brett Midland. Yeah, I was gonna say at, at least he was sober enough to write songs at that point. You know, about the about the, that made him distinct in that band. Maybe well, I don't well know. he wasn't because he died of an overdose by by '90. So oh, I, I, oh okay. So well, hey, so you I, know. He, yeah. He, he fooled me. Uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't, yeah, you can be coherent and fucked up, you know? So right, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you're going to kind of summarize the journey at the beginning of the decade, you know, they're at their most ambitious, you know, they're able to road test these songs. They're able to bring in that confidence and capture that in, uh, by the end of the decade, they're kind of a petering out train, but still, even on this record, you know, they get out, they pump out Althea. So they never produced a record that was a complete dud and a complete, okay, we're going to put that back in the mothballs and nothing, there's no goodness that comes out of it. They never got to that point. And that, yeah, I think that makes them special. Unlike yeah. a lot of their, unlike a lot of their peers uh, from the 1960s and seventies who, you know, suffered through that acute disease called eighties itis. <laughs> yeah. All you have to look at Bob Dylan, see Neil Young, see Joni Mitchell, and on and yeah, on and yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, they all they all kind of fell off. And so uh I'd like to kind of end the you know, this is a two-part episode. This has been fun. Let me quiz you, Art. So yeah. uh this so this is twelve albums total that we covered. Yeah. Which one of those albums is the best album? American Beauty, hands down. Yeah, American Beauty. I, I I was just seeing if you would divert from that. Uh, yeah. Best song on okay. Well, okay. Well, let's do it. Best Garcia Hunter song. Um, for from, me, from the, it, for me, Franklin's Tower. Yeah, and I would say Stella Blue. Uh, 
best Bob Weir song? Mm, Sugar Magnolia. Yeah, I I would either say that or frankly, or estimated never, profit, or a, estimated and, profit. And I would say I would personally say the the music never stopped. Uh, it's kind of tricky because you know Sugar Magnolia uh, is co written with Garcia and Hunter, so that's not right. quite sure. Sure, yeah. There's uh, there's that. Um, I, I I love the goofiness of Samson and Delilah, so I'm always gonna yeah. like uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, I'm always gonna uh, 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 wave my hand for that one. Gotcha. And then uh, the the song that you think captures Garcia's the essence of Garcia's playing uh, the best uh, and the most. The one that captured the essence of his guitar playing the best and the most. Uh, I would say Eyes of the World. Yeah, to me, yeah, I it's it's a toss up for me. I think it's if you're going to go on those twelve records, I would say either Slipknot or, uh, frankly, uh, Alth- uh, Althea. I mean, Maybe. there's yeah, there's a couple, but I, I like Slipknot and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's 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 a couple of of others. I think actually trucking is is a pretty mm. good is a pretty yeah. good uh, Garcia uh, yeah. song uh, there. So yeah, there's that. And then obviously you know Phil Lesh, great bassist. And so when I think of his bass, I think of Addicts of My Life. What would you think of Phil Lesh? Box of Rain, best song he ever wrote. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So you know, there's that. And uh, best cover, uh, I would I would mm. vote. Uh, good loving by uh, uh, maybe by the rascals Could by be. the young rascals. I I I I might go with that one too because their their covers when they did covers they were best done live not in the studio. Yeah. Right, and if it's not good loving, and then it's probably morning dew on the debut. Yeah, morning dew on the debut for sure. Yeah, definitely. Gotcha. And any That'll other trivial category? Any other trivial categories? Lightning round categories? I forgot. Garcia at his at, uh, Garcia at his best and most playful Shakedown Street. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I I would definitely say that. And then in some ways, estimated profit might work there because of that. How maybe. clever how clever that is. Yeah. But no, yeah, definitely Shakedown Street. Maybe even Alabama Getaway. That's kind yeah. of yeah. That's kind of him. It is kind of like you know most showy. You know. Sure. Uh, autobiographical note on uh, on Alabama Getaway in uh, spring of 1996, I saw Bob Dylan at the Landmark Theater in Syracuse, New York. Yes, and he played he played his version. He played a version of Alabama Getaway where Dylan took the lead guitar and the lead guitar solo, and it was terrible. <laughs> you know, it's awful. You, you don't Dylan, say. Dylan, Dylan never was a lead guitar player. He nope. tried to evoke Jerry Garcia, and he botched it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting, and and uh, yeah. So this has been a really interesting uh, exercise. I would say that the um, the most surprising song in the catalog to me is Saint Stephen. Uh, yeah, you know that because in the the kind of the 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 depths that it reaches and how it's structured and not only that but you you know when you're going through it linearly going from anthem to the sun which is basically just a big old splotch yeah and then saint stephen which is this really clever organized uh kind of kind of almost like laid back hippie shell silverstein 
uh, yeah. uh, t- type of thing with like just like great playing and like, you know, great little uh, kind of uh, sideline sections and all of this. It's it's really good. So yeah. uh, so there you go, folks. That's a little bit more color to uh, to summarize these. Any final thoughts on our uh, deadology there, Arturo? I think we pretty much nailed them all. And I would like to uh, let it be known that we're going to we're done with the Grateful Dead, but in a way, kind of not, because in the next episode, we are going to talk about a band probably single handedly most responsible for keeping the, the Grateful Dead spirit and legacy of improvisational jam music on stage and just the overall spirit and the and 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 of the band and the soul of the band going into the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century and yes folks we are going to defend the legacy of none other than fish yes which i think is easy to do or at least easier than you might think uh why uh to, to set that up, uh, when the dead did their 50th anniversary show in Chicago, guess who played Garcia? <laughs> Mr. Trey, An- Mr. Trey Anastasio. And yeah. guess who, uh, guess how, uh, Anastasio tuned his guitars to Garcia's, Garcia's perfectly. And so, yeah. uh, that ought to set that up. Uh, on that note, folks, uh, you can always reach out to us with thoughts and musings at uh, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. We have our Facebook community, the Curmudgeonly community. Uh, Look for some new content out there. We have Spotify playlists, and uh, there's there's some stuff lined up there. And so, yes, we're we're looking to convert uh, acolytes uh, to our and and new new entrants into our community. So exciting times there, folks. And uh, Mike, what we're going to be doing going forward, uh, look out for a uh, if you are a Spotify uh, subscriber, look out for Spotify playlist that is not going to be real clever. It's just going to take all seven of these records, paste them in there, and there you go as an accompaniment. And so uh, with that, uh, rock on, folks. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely see you in two weeks. <laughs>